0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, we're going to enjoy the third and final instalment in our series of specials focusing on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 22nd edition of which took place virtually in January under the banner A New Horizon People, Planet, Prosperity. In these programmes, we have been dipping into the GCC and bringing you insights and highlights from the event. One thing the GCC certainly helps UBS to do is frame the forces shaping China's future in terms of growth and development. A perennial issue when training that lens is how best to help clients and investors separate hype from real opportunity. Today we have something very special indeed for you that speaks to one such area and that has been a topic of huge recent focus as well as being of potentially profound importance in terms of how we will all live and engage with our planet in the future. Because we're hearing today from Amy Webb, founder of the Future Today Institute, a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, best-selling author of The Big Nine and writer of the new book, The Genesis Machine, which explores the future of synthetic biology. And that, with the subtitle, Breakthrough Science and Emerging Technology, is the topic of the brilliant Amy Webb's talk today. Amy began by explaining how she advises clients and companies and some of the ways that they can take control and achieve meaningful transformation. Here's Amy.
1: When companies are planning for the future, especially when that involves investment cycles, they tend to think very narrowly and oftentimes they think very short-term. There's an inherent tension between calculating inflection points for disruptive technologies, which tells you you when to make your key investments and the volatility, uncertainty, ambiguity, and complexity of technology itself. You can resolve that tension by mapping the short-term, that's your signals and trends, With the long-term, those are your longitudinal trends and scenario planning simultaneously. In the near term, as you see here on the cone, you've got the most data, the most evidence you're ever going to have. Therefore, a business can develop a tactical action uh, or the strategic building blocks that they'll need for the future. And those should tether to its corporate strategy. But here's where sometimes things fall apart. That has to be done in coordination with longer-term planning, not aspirational planning, but intentional planning. So what does transformation look like? And what's the company's vision to achieve that transformation? The further out in time you go, whether that's five years, 10 years, 20 years, the less data that you're going to have. But it doesn't mean that you don't do planning. You just make different types of decisions. Farther in the future you've got less data and therefore less certainty. And therefore what you do instead is make big thematic bets. Failing to define transformation and vision makes a business vulnerable to outside disruption. We've seen this again and again. The problem is that most companies whether they're a Fortune 50 pharmaceutical company or one of the biggest insurance companies or banks Traded on the Shanghai Stock Exchange, is that executive leaders are not really thinking near and long-term simultaneously. Therefore, when they're presented with a new technology for the first time, one that challenges existing mental models, the reaction is all about today. What does this new technology mean to our top-line growth in the next year, to our bottom line in the next quarter? They get sucked into what I like to call the executive leadership vicious cycle of doom. And it goes something like this. When they see a new technology or a science for the first time, I've never heard of it. And then somebody explains it to them and maybe shows them a few examples and their reaction is, that's just a fad. That's never gonna take on, it's, it's trendy. And with a little bit more time and perhaps some more use cases in the marketplace, the executive leader will say, okay, well, I get what this is, but it's just too soon for us to make decisions. We've got other things to do. Then there's maybe an investment cycle, a couple of big wins. Okay, fine. I, I guess this technology is here to say, but it's not really relevant to us right now. And then, of course... As that new technology moves from the fringe to the mainstream and it gathers steam, you get different responses. Oh, people seem to be using this thing all the time to finally, damn it, how did we miss this? And then there's some kind of emergency offsite and a lot of people get in trouble. That's not a good way to manage a business when you've got so much uncertainty right all around us. There is a way to break this vicious cycle of doom, and it has nothing to do with making crazy predictions about the future. I'm a futurist, and I will tell you, I'll be the first person to tell you that there is no way to accurately predict a comprehensive and complete future. There's not enough data on the planet to make that work, and there's no algorithm or supercomputer strong enough to do calculations on every possible variable in real time. The math doesn't work out. So instead, the way that you break this vicious cycle of doom is to confront your cherished beliefs, but you have to do that in a methodical way. So you've never heard of that technology. You say, okay, I'm gonna lean into uncertainty, seek out signal data, and we're gonna model trends. And from there, we're gonna use those trends, we're gonna qualify them, and then we'll develop strategic scenarios. And we'll use those scenarios to engage our executive team members in strategic conversations, which is going to lead to new insights as we rehearse the futures. Finally, that's going to help us make big bets on transformation. And from those big bets, we'll work backwards and recalibrate our three to five-year strategy. And we'll figure out what tactical actions we need to take in the present as needed. This is how companies see inflection points early. This is how they lead transformational growth and they're even able to thrive under complex uncertainty because you're gonna get back to the end of that cycle and be confronted with yet another new technology all over again. So today I'd like to introduce you to what I think is actually the most important technology platform of the 21st century. It's biology, synthetic biology, is on a long-term trajectory. It requires what you saw in that time cone, near-term thinking, long-term strategy, big vision, and bold ideas about transformation. And importantly, it absolutely requires that we break that vicious cycle of doom. When we think about synthetic biology, it's useful for us to talk through the different contours and dynamics of the bioeconomy. If synthetic biology is not a term you're used to, let me start with a quick overview. Right now, scientists are rewriting the rules of our reality. Synthetic biology has a singular goal, to gain access to our cells, or to cells in any organic life, in order to write new and possibly better biological code. A series of new biological technologies and techniques which broadly fall under this umbrella of synthetic biology. They're going to allow us not just to read DNA and to sequence DNA and to edit DNA, but in fact to write new code, which means that pretty soon we'll be able to program living biological structures as though they were tiny computers. The promise of synthetic biology is the future built by the most powerful, sustainable manufacturing platform humanity has ever had. We're on the cusp of a breathtaking new industrial yet biological evolution. Now I know some of you are thinking biology, I mean we're here to describe, you're here to talk about tech and signals and capital allocation and broad investment strategies. So I'd like to make this much more tangible for you. So let's start with a question. Why should a financial institution care at all about the future of biology? The answer, I think, has to do with chickens. A century ago, in the 1920s, it took an average of three months and around 1.5 kilograms of feed to grow a single chicken that could be sold for its meat. Back then, the average chicken that you would buy at a market was roughly one kilogram. So, like, we've got a chicken right here. This, like, chicken from 100 years ago would, would have been smaller, a little skinnier, a little scrawnier. But that's not what's happening today. Today, industrial farms have genetically modified chickens to be really fat. They can grow up to three kilograms now in under seven weeks, and they require roughly two kilograms of feed. Most chickens are raised in crowded conditions. I mean, it's not really the most humane way to grow our food. And to be honest, the meat, it isn't great. The texture for a chicken like this, it can be a little off, a little too stiff, a little too fatty. But we have supply and volume problems all around the world because it turns out we eat a lot of chicken. For those of you located in Hong Kong, you eat an average of 23 kilograms of chicken every year. I used to live in Hong Kong and I worked in Wan Chai and I had chicken, I feel like almost every day for lunch that was mixed into some meal. It's a lot of chicken that's being consumed in Hong Kong. But in Singapore, you eat a lot. I mean like a lot of poultry, roughly 36 kilograms a year per person. So if we take a step back and do the math on this, that's roughly eight really fat chickens per person per year once you take into account all of the parts of the chicken that you're not eating, like the head and the the guts and things like that. So those eight fat chickens require a lot of food, roughly 12 kilograms of feet every single year. Now, because Singapore is one of the world's most vibrant, exciting, gorgeous financial centers with around 5.6 million residents, you you get a lot of people in Singapore, which means that... Singapore, in order to feed all of the people who live there, needs 45 million chickens every year. Now, the problem is that there's no space to raise 45 million chickens in Singapore. I mean, where are you going to put 45 million chickens and the 67 million kilograms of feed that they would need to survive? Are you going to put all this in Marina Bay Sands or on Orchard Road? That's where synthetic biology comes in. What if instead of a giant chicken farm growing fat chickens, instead, Singapore built maybe a nice building somewhere, and inside of that building was a bioreactor? What if cells from chickens were extracted, not from the fat chickens that don't really taste great right now because they've been modified to grow fast, but instead cells from heritage chickens, the ones from you know that were specially preserved from a while ago that taste really good? Now, what if those cells were extracted, and what if artificial intelligence was used to select the very best cells, the ones that were most likely to produce the most delicious, perfectly textured meat? And those cells were stored safely so that they could continue to divide and grow to produce indefinitely, sort of like, if any of you have ever made bread, like sourdough bread, sort of like a sourdough bread starter. Perfectly stored chicken cells would be loaded into a bioreactor, which would provide the energy and heat needed to continue that biological process happening. And the cells would be immersed in a growth medium of natural amino acids, vitamins, and fats, not the hormones and the antibiotics and all the other stuff that we're using right now. Just the usual stuff that would be inside of a mother hen naturally and those cells could be fed the same nutrients as a live chicken would be fed so that the cells could naturally divide and grow. Over time, those cells would become tissue, meat, right? And after a few weeks, that meat would be harvested from the reactor and ready for processing and packaging into something that looks like a tender, juicy chicken cutlet. Real chicken meat with the same molecular structure of the Chicken meat that you would buy from a chicken that it once was alive, but also improved because this chicken would no longer be limited by the constraints of commercial production. And that chicken could be ready in about half the time of chicken produced today with none of the feed required. And this new chicken wouldn't require a cold chain for transportation, multiple layers of international inspections and it would have a lower probability of pathogens like E. coli. Cultured chicken made the way that I'm describing it. It would shorten the supply chain significantly. It would make Singapore less reliant on poultry exporters from other countries and potentially, weirdly enough, this makes Singapore a potential local supplier of meat regionally. Singapore, because of its strategic geographic positioning, could actually become a major poultry producer for Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia. And in fact, this chicken, it was actually made using synthetic biology and it was served last year in a restaurant in Singapore. Last year, synthetically produced chicken was served in 1880, which was a really fancy, nice restaurant and a members club in Singapore. This is the first time in human history that lab grown cultured meat made entirely from from animal cells, not plant mixtures, was served at a restaurant. It took the Singapore government around two years to approve cultured chicken, which was actually, to be fair, manufactured in a bioreactor in California. And the government had a safety panel that evaluated the quality of the cell line, the bioreactor, the process used, and it entered the market. Now, at the moment, it's expensive to produce meat this way, but that's changing. Remember, back in 2013, that Dutch startup Mosa Meat, which made international headlines for producing a hamburger that cost around $280,000, that synthetic biology meat um, has really evolved in the past decade. The current cost to produce cultured meat ranges from 200 to around $1,000 per kilogram, which is still not scalable to the mainstream. But this tracks with just about every other big technological innovation that I've been tracking and that we've all been looking at over time. We know that R&D will lead to greater efficiencies, that will help new startups attract investment, that investment will lead to business cases that will spark ecosystem growth, that ecosystem growth will drive down the cost of components you know, and production, and that eventually will spur regulators to develop new standards to enable the marketplace to flourish. We have seen this happen over and over again, the same pattern with automobiles and computers. And I actually think that the best analogy here to help you understand how this market is starting to form is the telephone. In May of 1877, Alexander Brambell and Thomas Watson stood on a stage in New York, New York City. It was called Chickering Hall. And they showed off this ridiculous looking contraption they had made to a big crowd of around 300 people. This weird new invention was built to transmit a human voice using the electrical pulses of a telegraph wire. They invented a machine, a receiver, a membrane that basically could turn speech into electrical pulses and then transform those pulses back into speech. On the day of this product demo at Chickering Hall, Bell spoke into the receiver and suddenly the audience heard somebody singing on the other end. But nobody, like the audience was not like, wow, this is a pretty amazing invention. The audience thought they were lying. They they thought the whole thing was this elaborate hoax. They demanded to be taken backstage so that they could see the singer who they thought was hiding somewhere, right? Now, in time, we all know what happened. Within a few years of this crazy demonstration, there were dozens of businesses that launched to support the demands of an emerging telephone economy common battery systems, metallic circuits, cables, switches, handsets, eventually wall-mounted telephones and network designs for telephone exchanges and enormous antenna that could carry telephonic signals and all the companies to install them and switchboards and operators and utilities to generate and distribute power. By 1918, which is roughly 30 years later, there were 10 million Bell system telephones throughout the United States and similar local networks spanning all across Scandinavia and Europe. That eventually led to cross-Atlantic wires and then to communications satellites and then to the internet. And here we are today. There's no way to calculate at this point the global value of telecommunications. I mean any study would be flawed because it's now a general purpose technology like electricity. If you remove electricity from society, there would be dire economic consequences for income, for productivity, and our ability to create goods and services. It's that fundamental that the only way to calculate the value of it is to take it away and see what we would lose. Synthetic biology is now in its speaking telephone at Chickering Hall phase, right? It exists, some people think it's completely made up, they are demanding to understand how it works, but the massive network of businesses and supporting infrastructure are being built. And just like with the phone and the internet, the value of synthetic biology, the value that it will eventually deliver to society is gonna extend far beyond what we can even conceive of today. But we have some early indicators. McKinsey did a study last year or two years ago, analyzing the the potential global impact of our current several hundred synthetic biology-related innovations in the pipeline today. And basically they determined that, that this looks like a $4 trillion industry in a very short amount of time. And that $4 trillion, it doesn't account for all the knock-on financial impacts of adjacent businesses and services and products that will inevitably emerge to support this industry. Within synthetic biology, there are lots of pipeline services and tools. You could think of these as kind of foundational elements. So you've got DNA search, uh, synthesis, sequencing, optimization, things like that. There are companies that produce the wetware, software, hardware, and assorted technologies to support the ecosystem. Companies like Twist Biosciences and Ginkgo Bioworks. There are companies that make high throughput bioreactors and most people don't know this, but some big tech players are in this space as well. Microsoft is actually one of the biggest of the big tech players. And a ton of this work from research to commercialization is happening in China. It just doesn't get a lot of publicity. There are facilities, in addition, that when you do this work, uh, especially labs, they require low latency, high bandwidth connections, which means that 5G and telecommunications also plays a pretty big role in this ecosystem. And of course, there's the end product output. So here's something to think about. What if messenger RNA that we currently have in some of our vaccines, which, what if this is just the beginning of a completely new era of medicine? In the next two decades, synthetic biology technologies are gonna be harnessed in all different types of ways. I mean, well before some of these companies were making COVID-19 vaccines, companies like Moderna and BioNTech, they were researching immunotherapies for cancer using messenger RNA. And uh, they were learning how to encode protein containing mutations that were unique to a patient's tumor, and then getting the immune system new instructions via messenger RNA to search and destroy similar cells, cancerous cells all throughout the body. It's actually very similar to how the company's COVID-19 vaccines work. We already know that on the near-term horizon are similar types of vaccines for malaria, you know, a universal flu vaccine and other implementations. Synthetic biology is also being used to grow organoids. These are like tiny blobs of tissue grown from human stem cells. This is what's called a body on a chip, and it includes different combinations of organoids. So basically, this is a transparent circuit board that's connected to a system that pumps a blood substitute through it. And with this, you could connect a tiny heart, liver, and let's say lung together, and then start testing different therapeutics on it. You could test lethal chemicals. You could test toxins. You could test new viruses to see how the body might react. And then you can also test potential treatments on living human tissue without needing to harm or put in harm's way other humans or animals. So. We already know there's a lot happening with food and with medicine, but the material space is also pretty interesting here. The textile and clothing industry is a notorious polluter. Cotton fibers and textiles for clothing, all this tends to still rely on coal. And that process contributes around 10% or so of global carbon emissions, and it requires a ton of water. Microfibers could actually be grown in a biofoundry. And you could grow bio-based pigments to dye textiles, which you could edit to deposit the optimal amount of color into textiles, which would, again, require far less water or no water at all and have less runoff issues. Consider what synthetic biology could do for the nylon industry. Nylon is used in industrial materials, in athletics, in aeronautics, and clothing. And it's cheap to produce, and it's very durable. So it shows up just about everywhere. Running shoes, rubber tires on your cars, cookware, luggage, flak jackets, backpacks, tennis rackets. Um, Its production generates more than 60 million tons of greenhouse gases, but you can actually produce nylon using engineered microorganisms. But synthetic biology, as promising as all of this sounds, you know, we, we should be honest, there are lots of risks that we ought to consider. And I wanna highlight just five here so that we can level set. First is regulation. Right now, there's a patchwork of regulation and none of it really makes sense. In the US, biotech regulations have been a mess since the 1990s. In the European Union, the UK, also China, the frameworks there, the biotechnology frameworks don't necessarily make sense for synthetic biology and they haven't really been modernized. The second risk has to do with dual use, which is inevitable. This is where scientific and technological research that's intended for good sometimes gets repurposed for bad things, for harm. There are international treaties and enforcement protocols and agencies that exist to monitor dual uses in lots of spaces, chemistry, physics, even artificial intelligence. But synthetic biology is so new that those treaties don't exist yet which is a problem. Third, biology is interconnected and it tends to self-sustain even when we don't want it to, which means that at some point, there might be a new product that gets developed that has downstream negative impacts that we just didn't think about or conceive of to start with. Fourth is the looming genetic divide. Within the decade, CRISPR and other genetic tools are going to be developed to manage viruses, repair tissue, combat mutations, lengthen our lifespans, which is all great, but this technology is just not gonna be available to everyone everywhere because of cost or local regulations or even just cultural norms and standards. Fifth, perhaps the most obvious, has to do with geopolitics and bioescalation. Now listen, both China and the United States have made great strides in synthetic biology And as a result, they both have synthetic biology on their strategic roadmaps, their economic roadmaps, and their their military plans. So this potentially leads to new forms of economic and diplomatic conflict down the road. Now, these five risks are not going to be easily resolved, but we can begin addressing and possibly even mitigating some of those risks today before they become major problems in the future.
0: Amy explained that despite the number of potentially disruptive and headline-grabbing themes out there, that might be the metaverse or cryptocurrencies or blockchain or NFTs, the important thing is to keep one's focus firmly on the big picture.
1: Just like the real value of the metaverse isn't cartoon avatars, and what's really important about decentralization isn't NFTs and digital art, The peril of synthetic biology isn't designer babies, at least not for a very long time. And the promise is optionality, new ways to deal with existential threats like climate change and our global supply of food. Now is the time to think about the application of capital, how the decisions you'll make over the next few years will shape how this entire industry is formed. There are headwinds, of course, and yes, there is risk, But if you can define what transformation looks like across different industry sectors where you operate within your own company or the companies in which you're invested, you can start thinking through what vision related to the futures of synthetic biology will support that transformation. And then what are the strategic actions that ought to be taken in the near term? Finally, if any of this sounds vaguely familiar to you, um, if you were at the GCC Uh, Two years ago, some of you might remember getting a sampling of this whiskey from a company called Glyph. This whiskey, I'm actually going to have a glass of it myself right now, that was made using synthetic biology. It was not made by a master distiller in Kentucky. Instead, it was handcrafted by scientists in a San Francisco lab. Is it the world's greatest whiskey I've ever tasted? No, I'm a bourbon drinker. But you know what? They made it. They scaled it, and this is just the beginning. Cheers.
0: Well, cheers to you too, Amy. That was the brilliant Amy Webb, founder of the Future Today Institute, professor at NYU Stern School of Business and the best-selling author of The Big Nine and writer of the new book, The Genesis Machine, which looks at the future of synthetic biology. And that wraps up this episode and indeed this year's special series of reports from the 2022 UBS Greater China Conference. I hope you've enjoyed our extended coverage of this latest iteration. You can find out more about the GCC and the themes we've been hearing about today and in previous episodes, head to ubs.com now and search GCC. You can hear more special episodes by browsing the archive of past editions of this show right now at monocle.com or dip in to subscribe and to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24.